This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Tuesday Time with Joan Bartlett and its Listener Sponsor Week, where we encourage our listeners to join us and become an active member of this wonderful, enduring radio station. From its beginnings in the early 1970, we've gone from strength to strength on our own independent, with our community, listeners, programmers and volunteers. So today I'm asking you to become part of this precious media outlet in a particularly difficult time for media in the Western world. Censorship relating to the Zionist state of Israel is on the rise. Journalists silenced, sacked. In Gaza, over 100 killed and others self-censoring. But here at 3CR we have given a voice to Palestinians and other threatened minorities and indigenous peoples since our inception. So during the program, if you could ring 94198377, find out how you can join and become a member of this wonderful radio station. Or go to the website 3cr.org.au. But on the program today, the visit to the Philippines of United Nations Human Rights Rapporteur Dr Irene Khan. Human rights activist Peter Murphy has been following her visit and the outcomes. Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees on the topic I spoke about earlier, censorship in relation to the Zionist state of Israel. Not only the media, but educational institutions and the medical profession and others. Nick McClellan and the number of areas concerning Pacific Island nations. And first up, Dr Tim Anderson, what he predicted a long time ago, the widening conflict in the Middle East. Next week, Kevin Healy will be back with his week that was. The situation in Gaza and increasingly in the West Bank and Jerusalem. I'm sure we all find it hard to contemplate what... Life must be life for the Palestinians at this time. Daily war crimes, attempted genocide, forced removals, demolitions, death and disease. We all cope in our various ways. I asked activist and former senior lecturer at Sydney University, Dr Tim Anderson, his means of coping and overcoming the feelings of hopelessness to change the situation. By engaging, I guess, because I, I mean, in, in some ways, it's uh, we all feel impotent, but that we we have a voice and we can do something. So I feel I deal with it by engaging in some way, you know, by contributing somehow. Well, by writing, by talking, you know, to you, by um, by going to the rallies that we have here, by um, you know, in, engaging in lots of ways, by doing things to support the Palestinian struggle. And of course, that means these days, I think it's becoming more obvious that this is a regional struggle you know more than ever before we're now seeing the evidence that the, all of the wars in the middle east are interlinked as i argued in my second book on the middle east axis of resistance it's a single war and there's a combined resistance which we're seeing now from many parts of the region in support of palestine we'll just stay with the palestinians for a few moments they're now all corralled into Rafah. what's going to happen there well, yes. Uh, actually, a lot of the a lot of the, the Palestinians in Gaza uh, have been pushed to the south, which is now under attack itself. And of course, let's remember there's also 
crimes and resistance going on in the West Bank too and other parts of Palestine. But uh, it's true that the, there's a progressive um, displacement of Palestinian people in Gaza towards the south. And of course, the, the Zionist leaders have been expressing their desire to try and push them out entirely, if, if not kill them all, but uh, the ones that survived push them out entirely into Egypt. So that's part of the, the overall plan at the moment, although it's, there are a number of elements of resistance to that plan, including from the Egyptian state itself, and uh, there's mixed signals coming from the Biden administration. But the plan has been to try and evacuate Gaza completely of its, of its population and then redevelop it as another arm of, uh, of the ever-growing greater Israel colony. Do you believe the Egyptians can be bribed into doing this? So far, no. So far now, because there are, there are a lot of problems in Egypt already and the, the Sisi regime has got its hands full. It's protested very strongly to the Israelis and to the Biden administration. I believe that Sisi even got some assurances from the Biden administration, whatever that's worth, basically. But you still see people in the, the Anglo-American world, as I call it, talking about the the displacement, which they tried to call uh, voluntary emigration or something, you know, with other countries hosting the Palestinians who are being driven out, um, if not into Egypt, then into other countries. Um, I think there's some movements in our country too to, to try and do that, to portray it as some sort of humanitarian, humanitarian gesture to house uh, refugees from Gaza who are effectively being ethnically cleansed from their own, their own land, basically. Egypt has resisted it, and I think it will continue resisting because there's huge overpopulation in Egypt and there are serious problems that they are having difficulty dealing with. And the West Bank, increasing attacks on the people there? Yes, increasing attacks and resistance. Remember also you've got, as part of this regional war, you had, of course, the um, the resistance offensive on October the 7th which um, destroyed large parts of the Israeli garrison around Gaza and also displaced a lot of the settlers in the colonies of the kibbutzes and so on in southern occupied Palestine. And at the same time, the Hezbollah offensive in the north has displaced, which is systematically attacking Israeli surveillance and military facilities up there. It's displaced another 100,000 or more settler colonists up in the north there and they're complaining that they are not able to go back yet so there's been and there's been fairly large-scale emigration from the israeli entity too there's some tens of thousands i believe there was thirty thousand in one day that left going back to many in many cases their home countries remember many israelis are dual citizens of the u.s and uh, european countries for example so there's been um change in the demographics there to the point where it seems like it's possible that and the Lebanese resistance and perhaps the Syrians might even declare some of that part of occupied Palestine and occupied Syria and occupied Lebanon liberated sometime soon. That, that would all depend on their air defences, basically. But at the same time, you've got resistance activities going on in the West Bank, particularly in East Jerusalem, in Janin, for example, in Hebron, where there are attempts to still ongoing attempts to try and ethnically cleansed parts of Hebron city, or it's called Al-Khalil in Arabic. They've taken advantage, really, of the, of, of the war in Gaza to push ahead with, that, with the ethnic cleansing in, in Hebron city. And 
the economy of Israel itself, it must be suffering pretty badly now. They've got so many reservists called up. A lot of the guest workers have left and they're not being able to recruit many from overseas. What's your understanding of that? Yes, that's true. There's a lot of um, pressure on the Israeli economy, of course. Uh, Most famously, the Yemenis have tried to block and have blocked most of the shipping to Israel through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. However, there's been some um, compensation there because some of the Comprador Arab regimes, particularly the Saudis, the Emiratis and Jordan, have been sending supplies to the Israelis while on the one hand they're complaining about the attacks on Gaza. They're resupplying the Israeli regime by land through Saudi Arabia, through Jordan, into the Israeli entity, basically. So um, at the same time, a lot of the air traffic has been blocked to Tel Aviv, basically. So uh, one of the major container shipping lines from China has stopped its operations to Haifa Port, which is managed itself by Chinese companies these days. So there is a great deal of pressure on the um, on the Israeli economy, and I believe there's a fair degree of inflation in goods there too. And of course, all of that dissatisfaction about the two or 300,000 colonists who've been uh, effectively scared away from their, their colonies um, by the military operations, both in the south and the north, that adds to the, the pressure there. And on top of that, of course, you've got an ongoing political turmoil there. The the large faction of Israelis, the majority these days, that really detests the Netanyahu regime and w- would prefer to get rid of him. We hear similar sounds coming from the US these days too. So there's there's that internal political dissatisfaction too. But he's got to hang on, doesn't he? Because if he, if he gets kicked out, he's facing lots of um, trials for his misdemeanors. Yeah, that's a large part of the, um, the complaints coming from one side of the Israeli political divide, basically that Netanyahu has been trying to set himself above the law by controlling the courts at a time when he's facing corruption charges. That's at the root of a lot of the Israeli complaints there. They're not necessarily focused on what he's doing to the Palestinians, but they also focused on the fact that he, Netanyahu has been pursuing his war objectives with little regard for the prisoners of war that were taken by Hamas and, and Islamic Jihad on the 7th of October. He hasn't made it a priority to carry out prisoner exchanges there, so there's dissatisfaction from both those sides. But if he was dislodged, how disruptive would that be to their war? Well, it's not clear. It's not clear that the uh, that the opposition there is an opposition with them. There is an opposition, of course, but it's not clear that there's an opposition that has a different strategy because there is a very strong consensus amongst the Israeli elite uh, to pursue this genocidal war in Gaza. It's not simply something invented by the leaders. There's genuine uh, a type of a mass fascist psychology about this that they want to hit Palestinian people very hard. And they're not concerned about uh, whether they're fighters or whether they're uh, civilians, basically. So it's not clear to what extent it would change that strategy there if he were replaced by any of the people in his own coalition, first of all, or from outside. That would seem difficult, uh, really, to displace him from what you might call the more liberal side of Israeli politics, which at the moment isn't particularly liberal, but in the absence of any sort of internal elections, it's not clear how that would happen. If there were a displacement, it's more likely that he'd be displaced by someone within his own coalition. And, of course, they're all quite extreme, the people in that coalition, so it's not clear that there would be a 
a huge change there. But nevertheless, people like Hillary Clinton have been saying that uh, Netanyahu is, a, is an obstacle because he's not complying with the, the U.S. demands. The U.S. is making some sort of demands about how the how the war is carried out. But on the other hand, they, they, there's no interruption to the, the continuous supply of weapons, of course. All of the bombs being dropped off in Gaza, of course, are coming from the U.S. and there's been no real attempt to restrain that at all. Well, in response to the assault in Jordan where three Americans were killed, the US and I believe the UK have hit 85 sites in Iraq and Syria. What about the people in those areas where these bombs are dropping? We just hear, oh, there might be sites where soldiers, they might have a base or something, but surely there must be a lot of people killed, their homes are destroyed, their lives are again yeah. disrupted after decades of war. Yeah, that, I, th- I believe the, what the figures were, 85 sites hit in Iraq and an unspecified number in Syria. And I've heard that um, through the cradle, the people at the cradle, that there were something like 16 people killed in Iraq and some dozens injured. But in Iraq, some of those people killed include some of the Iraqi doctors who were tending to the resistance forces there. Remember the, the Hashd al-Shabi, the, the popular mobilisation forces, are actually part of the national security apparatus of, of Iraq. They traditionally come out of the Prime Minister's office. So what the US has attacked, and, and in some cases they've assassinated some of the leaders there, are people who are part of the Iraqi government, part of the national security apparatus. And that's why there's been a huge reaction from sections of the basically most of the political elite in Iraq against the US presence in Iraq. It's, it's hardened that determination which the the Prime Minister al-Sudani expressed fairly recently for them to expel the US from Iraq. Remember, the US was re-invited into Iraq in 2014 in a moment of weakness when there was a huge ISIS resurgence backed by the Saudis, backed by the US basically to destabilise Iraq. And it was only the, the, the creation of this popular mobilisation force that prevented that and the coordination with leaders such as uh, General Soleimani from Iran. So in Iraq, there's now a, an increasingly difficult uh, situation for the US and the occupation of Iraq is very closely tied to the, the occupation of Syria. Remember, of course, they're stealing oil and wheat from Syria and it's going into Iraq in the first instance before it's um, exported in, in, in some cases to Turkey, the oil, for example. So, um, yes, there's, there's damage to security persons and also other, the other support services of the security forces in Iraq from these attacks. And the rationale that, that Biden put up was that, well, these are Iran-backed forces. Well, yes, um, much of the national security forces in Syria and Iraq are backed by Iran because Iran is the most important ally of, of them. And Iran also happens to be the most important ally of the Palestinian resistance, let's say all of the 10 armed resistance groups in Palestine are supported by Iran. And so Biden says, well, if Iranian-backed forces killed three of ours, then we're entitled to go after any Iranian-backed forces, which means virtually anyone in in Syria or Iraq or Palestine or Yemen, for that matter. So that's, uh, that's that's the sort of pit in which the U.S. is digging itself. It's really effectively declaring war on most of the region. And Yemen... After a decade of war, they're being bombed again. Mm. There can't be too many areas of Yemen that hasn't been bombed. 
Yes, uh, yeah, and of course there was a dirty war from the beginning of 2015 when the Ansarullah movement, which Western media likes to call the Houthis, Houthi rebels, actually they've been in control of 70% of the country until recently when that percentage is, has risen because the Ansarullah or Houthi um, support for the Palestinians has catalyzed a type of internal revolt within Yemen against the Saudi and Emirati puppet regimes which pretend to be the government. If you if you ask any, any Western government who's the government of Yemen, uh, if, if the Houthis are rebels, who's the government, they'll say there's some characters in Saudi Arabia sitting in hotels there, basically. But they have some militia on the ground, and some of those are defected to Ansarullah in recent times because they are really catalyzed by the, by the Palestinian conflict. They don't want to be on the side of a, a regime that's supporting the Israelis, which the, which the Emiratis and, and the Saudis are doing now. And they want to, some of them have defected. There's one large military group from the Southern Transitional Council and also the Muslim Brotherhood group, which the which Ansarullah has been fighting. Isla has also defected from the, the, the Saudi-backed war coalition, as, as Ansarullah calls it, because they identify more with Hamas now. Hamas comes out of the Muslim Brotherhood network too, basically. So there's a, a fracturing going on there. As you say, there's been a war that's been going on for almost a decade there anyway, which they, which the Ansarullah effectively won, and that's what led to the, the peace agreements with the, with the Saudis, basically. The Saudis now don't want to aggravate that. Uh, there was a renewal of the peace agreement at the same time that this US initiative to, in the Red Sea, mainly with Britain, to attack Yemen again more directly, the Yemenis always knew that the U.S. was behind the, the, the Saudi, apparently Saudi-led war against Yemen. But now they say they welcome the fact that the mask has dropped and they can see that directly that it's the U.S. and the U.K. that are uh, involved directly in the attack on Yemen. It hasn't had much impact. Uh, sorry, the, the attacks by the U.S. and the U.K. on Yemen haven't had much impact on the military capacity. That Yemen, Yemenis keep uh, intercepting, firing projectiles at the ships that they believe are supplying the Israeli regime and they, they keep deterring that sort of traffic. And that's why the land route for supply to the Israelis has been opened up from the Emirates through Saudi and Jordan in, into Israel, basically. So the attacks by the US on Yemen, um, they've killed some people, they've killed some dozens of people, but they haven't really had much of an impact on the capacity of the Yemenis to keep doing what they're doing. What's the significance of the United Kingdom involved now? It's interesting because it's it's a, re- a reversion to the traditional Anglo-American alliance in, in many ways, led by the US, of course, these days. But you might recall that when this Red Sea coalition that the US put together to, to attack Yemen was, um, and effectively to, in defense of the Israelis, to keep the supply lines open to the Israelis, that's why they were doing it. At a time of of, of genocide. Remember, the, the International Court of Justice has decided there is a plausible case, a plausible case, and a plausible risk of genocide in Israel. That was their initial finding. They haven't made their final findings, but Yemen in that in that situation was actually acting uh, consistently with its commitments under the the genocide convention, which it signed in the 1980s, to prevent and punish the crime of genocide, whereas Britain and the US have joined together. And the initial version of that included a number of Europeans, but they all pulled out. So the uh, Germany, Italy, Denmark, some of the others there, they were not happy with going into a 
a coalition led by the US military because they knew that the US military was likely to escalate things and carry out aggressions. So virtually all of the Europeans, except the British if they're still considered Europeans these days, pulled out of that coalition and you, you were left with the um, the Anglo-Americans basically, in other words, the US, the UK and some hanger-ons like Australia and Canada perhaps, you know, the English-speaking world which uh, is effectively a, a entourage for the US basically. So. It was a reduction of a broader sort of coalition that the US wanted to put together in the first place. Where do you see the role for Iran? Or where do you see it? Or are they just sitting back and watching what's happening? Iran has been very restrained. Uh, It's understandable. People might think that they're sitting and watching. But they have been, they've made it very clear that they support all the resistance factions in the region all of the Palestinian resistance factions, the resistance in, in Lebanon, the independent state in states in Syria and Iraq and, and Yemen, led by Ansarallah. But they don't make decisions for them. They aren't, as the Western media often says, proxies operating at Iran's directions. They're operating independently. The Yemenis are operating independently. The Palestinian resistance are operating independently. But yes, they are supported financially and in other ways, in some logistical ways, by Iran. But Iran itself has been quite restrained. Uh, Iran, of course, has the capacity to intervene if it wanted. It's got a very well-known missile capacity. It could strike directly at at the Israelis, but it has not done that, Uh, even though there's been some very serious provocations um, in these attacks on its allies in in Syria and Iraq, but also the assassination of a number of Iranian advisors in Syria. This has been going on for years, really, but uh, a number of senior advisors have been assassinated in Damascus, including recently. They promised to retaliate for that, but to retaliate in a proportionate way, basically. In other words, they're going to, as they did when they attacked, uh, for example, uh, Mosul in the north of Iraq and uh, what they said was a Mossad headquarters there. And they also attacked a, uh, a terrorist base in northwestern Idlib in Syria, which was, a, which was a first at the time there. But So they promised to retaliate for the provocations the Israelis are carrying out. But they have also been restrained in the sense they are concerned as many of the big players are, not to move into an escalation, which is unpredictable. That's the problem. That's why everyone fears escalation. No one knows exactly where it will go if it's left unconstrained. That's why Hezbollah in in Lebanon has been very precise and very careful about its targets. That's why Iran has not escalated the the character of involvement in the conflict so far. But that sits back there in abeyance, I suppose, that um, it depends on the nature of the... the provocations. The Israelis, for their part, would very much like Iran to get involved directly and then to, I don't know why, because they'd suffer very seriously if, if Iran sent a volley of uh, volley of missiles into the Israelis. Of course, Iran is capable of knocking out the entire air force of Israel, for example, and their, and their air, airports if they wanted to. Um, but that might risk a, an escalation with the U.S., um, attacking Iran directly. And if the US attacked Iran directly, the, the level of escalation would be rather unpredictable there. So, so far, there's been this concern from most parties uh, to avoid an escalation. The Israelis, of course, don't want a direct confrontation with Iran. They, they, they couldn't deal with that at all. But they would like Iran to do something like that so that the US could get directly involved. That's, the, that's what the Israelis, that's what Netanyahu regime has been trying to provoke, basically. But it doesn't stop 
Netanyahu having a go at bases in Syria and Iraq? Yes, exactly. And, and, and in many cases, those attacks, the assassinations in Damascus, the attacks on um, some of the border areas which are controlled by Iran and Iraq um, and Syria, they do that um, partly to try and weaken the, the grip of the resistance groups on the channels of communication between Iran, Iraq and Syria. I mean, the US itself is largely in Syria, in my view, to control the border and try and try and prevent the coordination between Iran, Iraq and Syria, uh, which is the conduit to supplying the resistance in Lebanon and, and Palestine. The Israelis keep carrying out these attacks, partly in the hope of provoking a an overreaction from Iran and then being able to draw the U.S. into a into a larger conflict. I would love the U.S. to be able to have a pretext for directly attacking Iran. To go back to Gaza, the Israelis keep on saying, we're going to destroy Hamas. We're not going to stop until we destroy Hamas. But Hamas, as you've pointed out and others point out, they're not the only Palestinian group fighting for independence and against the occupation. No, they're... Hamas is, is one of about 10 armed groups in Palestine. They are the, the biggest in Gaza, and that's why they are supported by, effectively, one way or another, by all of the resistance uh, regional groups, basically, including uh, the Lebanese resistance and Syria and the Iraqi resistance, for example. The Israelis, for their part, they haven't really... They've, they've retreated to some extent from the idea of destroying Hamas because they know that Hamas as uh, the, the, the former Palestinian diplomat Hanan Ashrawi pointed out, Hamas is very deeply embedded in Gaza because it's been effectively the government there for, for many years now. So it's involved in all of the ministries, you know, in education and in health and so on like that. So it's not really plausible that they could destroy Hamas. Um, they're really just creating an environment for a greater popularity of Hamas. There were some reasons why Hamas wasn't that popular in Palestine still, one, because it was religious-based and, and a sectarian version of Muslim Brotherhood politics. But what happened after October the 7th was, and there's been some polls recently on this, is that the, the people who would support or vote for Hamas there went up from about 23% to about 42%. So the popularity increased and the level of support for direct uh, armed resistance increased even more in the West Bank than in Gaza, basically, despite the fact that there have been these terrible reprisals, basically. So Hamas is, is not going to be wiped out, and the resistance more generally, the Palestinian resistance, and including the armed resistance, is not going to be wiped out that easily. So, of course, the Israelis have switched between this idea they're going to destroy Hamas or they're going to ethnically cleanse the whole... Uh, all of the women and children are equally responsible. They're now saying some things like that women and children were involved in this or that attack, and therefore, you know, there's a justification for them killing women and children. And then they have these remarkable racist theories about, you know, uh, destroying this enemy which is embedded through its, you know, genetically through its racial characteristics or some such thing. The terrible racial theories in the in the Zionist mind these days. We've all heard of the, you know, the the talk about you know, flattening Gaza and destroying everyone and not making any difference. That's why the South Africans took them to the International Court of Justice there. So the Israelis do not have a very clear plan. That's what it comes down to. They, they are carrying out a war to try and... Uh, it, 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 there's a lot of forces, not least the Palestinian resistance itself, which are preventing it from ethnically cleansing 
the whole of Gaza. The peop- many of the people themselves have said we're not going to we're not going to be driven out of our own country. Basically, that most of them are, are refugees already from hundreds of uh, villages which were destroyed in what's called 48 Palestine, what the Israelis call Israel these days, of what was you know the original the original Palestine that they've been displaced often two or three times the people in Gaza, more than the average Palestinian, basically. So there's resistance at that level. People are simply saying, we're not going to leave. And then there's armed resistance, and the Israelis are suffering very badly on the ground, actually. Some of their elite brigades have had to withdraw from uh, from Gaza. The Jelani Brigade, for example, suffered dozens of, dozens of casualties, dozens of deaths. And they are now, I believe, I've heard, they're in the north of, of occupied Palestine in anticipation of a potential escalation of action on the border with Lebanon because there's been continual talk about uh, a possible Israeli invasion of Lebanon, but it's not happening because there are really no good prospects for it. You know, the, the Hezbollah beat, the, defeated the Israelis militarily in 2006 when they invaded with the aim of trying to change the, the complexion of southern Lebanon and wipe out Hezbollah. They couldn't do it at all. Hezbollah is much better equipped these days than it was even back in 2006. And the operations the Hezbollah's carrying out are firstly in the north are firstly to degrade the, the Israeli military, but also to draw away a large part of its capacity to the north to provide relief, in other words, to Gaza, to, to draw away. Uh, I think early on in the day, there was talk that perhaps a third of the of the Israeli armor was in the north in, in anticipation of the uh, potential escalation up there. On the Lebanese side, there's significant... Uh, mobilisation on the Lebanese side to many of the resistance fighters or the, the so-called military reserve, uh, the volunteers, uh, they're waiting in anticipation of a potential escalation there too. So that all has the effect of diverting the Israeli military from what they're trying to do in Gaza. So that's another element of resistance, really, to, to draw away the Israeli capacity to, to do what it wants what it wants to do, even though they're still bombing from the air, of course, is the is the worst. And then you have artillery and, and tank fire and so on, which are still killing many hundreds of people every day. This is something that hasn't really slowed down much from what I've seen, From although there's less news about it now because, unfortunately, war gets normalised, doesn't it? People get used to the idea that this is happening or, or perhaps it, it slips out of the people's attention and slips off the, the, the front pages of whatever news source people are reading, basically. But from what I've seen, there hasn't been much of a retreat from the, um, the level of civilian slaughter. And, of course, now, as you pointed out, that's shifted down to rougher, down to the, the southern border crossing, the, the border crossing with Egypt, to which civilians were directed early on in the, in the war, and now, which is under, under, under direct attack now, Many, many civilians have been killed down near the rougher border crossing right now. Well, finally, Tim, where does all this leave the UN? We've got the long-held desire to destroy UNRWA. We've got the Israelis summing their nose at the ICJ. Mm. Where do they go? Yes, so there's a, there's a struggle, of course, to try and maintain uh, the UNRWA which is the, the one dedicated agency to providing some aid for the Palestinians, for Palestine, displaced Palestinian people, basically refugees or internally displaced people. Uh, there's a campaign to try and restore that. Uh, of course, the allegations that were made by the Israelis have turned out to be baseless, that there were people in, in that UN agency who were directly involved in the, in the attack on the Israeli military on, on October the 7th. 
there's no real basis for that. Now, I think um, our foreign minister, Penny Wong, has admitted that she hasn't seen any, any evidence of that. The ICJ side, that's going to take a long time, but the final determination of that case, it's not going to happen soon. It's going to take many, many months, if not years. But the initial finding of plausible genocide, a plausible risk of genocide, is already fuel for some political initiatives at the UN. It's possible that the UN General Assembly, because we know the Security Council is controlled by the NATO, three NATO states, basically. Uh, they have a veto on anything there. But the General Assembly could still take some initiatives, for example, imposing sanctions on the Israeli regime. Um, that's possible. They could even develop their own tribunal over the crimes in, in occupied Palestine if the General Assembly mobilised for that. On the side of the Anglo-Americans, you might have noticed that both the British and the US have started talking about again about um, the idea of recognising a Palestinian state regardless of whether the Israelis recognise it or not. And that might seem to be a an initiative in some ways. Of course, the, the, the US and the UK are looking for ways to try and escape from the the scandal of, of being directly associated with and, and backing the, the slaughter in Gaza. So they're looking for some political manoeuvring space there. The talk of, a, of an independent Palestinian state recognising that is um, really not much of a shift from what the Trump regime was doing in 2020 and what the US have done over many years. They talk about things, they never really deliver on them. And the, and the idea of a Palestinian state that's being talked about now can't be much different from in, in, the, in the minds of the US and the UK from the Trump plan from January 2020, which was basically simply calling the Palestinian Authority a Palestinian state, accepting the status quo, including all of the land stolen over the past decades and all of the settlements, you know, legitimising all the settlements which are at the moment illegal, not recognised under international law, not recognised under UN Security Council resolutions, recognising all of them, doing a bit of a sleight of hand called a land swap, which is to say, OK, you lost so many square kilometres of land in the West Bank and we'll compensate for it by so many square kilometres in the southern desert, you know, south of Gaza, and then creating this sort of strange sort of Bantustan regime. I, I use the word Bantustan because that was what it was called in, in apartheid South Africa when they talked about little self-governing regimes for the native populations. That's the, the type of crippled regime that the US and UK are thinking of now. It's not really going anywhere, but it's an attempt by the Anglo-Americans to try and set up a type of political out for themselves to, to avoid direct responsibility for the Israeli regime. I think we'll see some more proposals along those lines. Even there are many North American Jewish people and some Israelis who are talking about a single state. In other words, allowing citizenship for Palestinian citizens. And that's a rather more dramatic initiative. I think we'll see a bit more talk of this because there's going to be some attempts at some stage to restructure, if not dismantle, the current Israeli regime because it's not acceptable really to anyone these days, not even to the Israelis themselves. OK, thank you so much, Tim. OK, thanks, Jan. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Thank you, 3CR. We love you.
The law is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job, or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage, such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Today, a focus on the recent 10-day visit to the Philippines by the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Opinion and Expression. I'm speaking with human rights activist Peter Murphy. Peter, is this a new position within the UN? No, these special rapporteur, or they call them special mandates, uh, have been going on for at least a decade or maybe even two uh, with the UN Human Rights Council. What other countries yeah. have been visited? Um, well, many. I don't really follow them in, in that way. I, I'm so concerned about the Philippines. But, for instance, I, I do know about Iran. You know, there's a special rapporteur on the human rights situation in Iran. That person never gets to visit Iran, but regularly reports to the Human Rights Council. And... Um, there's one for Palestine, and there's also these thematic ones like on freedom of expression, on uh, environment and human rights, on terrorism, counter-terrorism laws and human rights, things like that. It's about the status of women and so on. So it's a big, you know, when you look up the website of the Human Rights Council and look for the special mandates, you know, there's about 40 of them. They're more or less like, I think, under-budgeted, you know. Um, they have their own job, but so they get to focus on, on this area of concern and independently report. So they're definitely like a sort of free agent. They're not really beholden to any other person or body except the uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Council. And so you get a fairly much of, you know, fearless uh, kind of reporting of the situation coming from them. That's great because it exposes the situations around these themes, but it doesn't necessarily lead to any action. And it's up to other bodies then to, to respond with some kind of action. How did the visit of Irene Khan come about? Well, uh, the special rapporteurs have been requesting to visit the Philippines since, you know, well, long ago, but especially 2016 when uh, Rodrigo Duterte became the president and changed the whole tone, you know, of the international profile of the Philippines. There was a lot of concern uh, to get there and see what's happening and try to put the brakes on. And um, Duterte wouldn't let anyone come. So there's been a sort of pent-up demand uh, in the last six years. So uh, when the change came and Marcos Jr. became the president, of course, all these special rapporteurs put, started putting in requests. 
So it's uh, Irene Khan is the third one to visit uh, in one and a half years. So it's, re it's not really that busy, is it? But uh, it's quite a uh, change to note that this is happening. But I, I think I should also comment that uh, despite this sort of relaxation and more calm uh, relationship between the government and the international community uh, in relation to the Philippines, um, there's really no real let up in the violations of human rights that we can see taking place there. She was there for 10 days, Peter. Can you talk about the places she was able to visit and who she was able to speak with? Yes, she went to Baguio City and she met there with the Cordillera People's Alliance and other people in the community. And she also went to um, Cebu City. And I think there it, it's a similar picture that uh, there, there's a series of reports of the, relating to the media workers and you know repression of, of people who actually speak up about problems. And then she went to Tacloban City, which is perhaps people can remember the uh, island of Leyte was struck by the typhoon, super typhoon Haiyan some years back. Uh, so Tacloban was put underwater then. Uh, anyway, she visited there and was able to interview four people who were arrested about three, four years ago now during the Duterte period. One of them, a journalist, Frenchie May Cumpio. And um, so she was, you know, with a focus on freedom of expression in the media and made a bit of a focus of her case. So she had been obviously uh, analysing or being briefed about the range of complaints emerging from the Philippines, especially on this freedom of expression and freedom of opinion, and then went to at least some of those uh, cases to see for herself. And of course, when she was in Manila, she she met or many, many senior officials of the government, including those in charge of the repressive bodies, you know, like the uh, National Task Force to end local communist armed conflict, such a mouthful. So uh, she... In, the, in her report, her preliminary assessment, she said that um, the, this body, the NTF-LCAC, should be abolished. And she was quite firm in a couple of her recommendations. How many of the people that she actually spoke, spoke with are actually still in jail? Frenchie May Cumpio is still in jail and, and the other three who were arrested with her. And um, in uh, Baguio City, it was more... Um, the families of people who have been abducted and those who have been listed as terrorists have their bank accounts frozen and, uh, you know, really under a lot of threat of death. I think by visiting them and talking to them, she she could see whether, you know, her in her own mind, you know, the alleged terrorist activities that they, they might have been doing and uh, and see the impact on their lives and, and on, on basically on uh, public discourse what's uh, the impact of what's been done to them. So uh, they, they are not in prison, but you can see that they're under a lot of pressure and quite restricted. Were there places and people that she wanted to go to see and she wasn't allowed to? I'm not aware of that. I mean, she may well have requested something more, but in her report she didn't uh, suggest there was any such restriction. And um, 
I think by being able to visit someone in a jail, you know, that's pretty good, I think. So probably she, she looked at, you know, 10 days is also the longest visit by a, a, these three uh, special rapporteurs who have come to the Philippines. And she took time, you know, to talk to people in, in the places she did visit. So I think it's, uh, it was not a problem in that regard. At Mindanao? She didn't get to Mindanao. So, I mean, there's many, many more places she could have visited with uh, real effect. But, uh, you know, again, 10 days um, would be a very significant part of her year's plan, I think, in terms of a visit to uh, our country. You know, I think it was uh, um, a step up from my, from our point of view as a human rights body. Uh, it was a step up that the, the visit was that long. And um, she can't be accused of not consulting government officials um, and, and hearing their side of the story. Therefore, you know, the conclusion she's come to in the short term, um, you know, are, are more credible, I suppose. Was she accompanied by government officials the whole time she was visiting people? So what I'm saying is, is there any threat to the people that she visited for repercussions? There, there can be, you know, I don't think she needs to have been, you know, shadowed by uh, an intelligence officer for that to happen either because her program was, you know, not a secret and uh, the, the people she visited are already under a lot of pressure from the government. Yes, I don't think that that's a, a feature of the, of the situation. Um, it's more likely that... Um, by having had an interaction with her, um, that these people have got a little bit more, but perhaps a little bit more protection. But, but looking back on what's happened in the past in the Philippines, you know, no one would really bank on that. So um, there was a, an Australian special rapporteur who visited in 2009. His name is Philip Olston. He also gave a very, very um, a powerful critique of the Arroyo presidency at that time. And um, some of the witnesses he he spoke to were killed, in, and uh, in one case, you know, he he really made a big promise to stand by that family, and uh, so he he I know he flew back to the Philippines for the funeral of that person. That I think that person was in Mindanao, and um, it's heartbreaking to relate these sort of stories, but. You see, it, it can happen. It can happen. Uh, I think the, the Filipino people that she spoke to, have li- they lived through this. And so I think that they, they're not going to be... Well, they're, they're not inhibited, you know, by, by that fear in speaking up for, you know, their own situation, but, but more so for the whole community they represent. Before we look at the, more at the conclusions that she came to, when you talk about previous reports on the situation in the Philippines and you look at the situation there now, it seems that nothing that they might have written has changed the situation much. I'm sure that the uh, work of the UN Human Rights Council and the High, High, High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Special Rapporteurs does make a difference. The trouble is that it's not decisive. You know, you can't expect just these things alone to, to change a whole government machinery and political drive of certain forces in the Philippines and even, you know, their 
supporters in the United States or Japan or wherever, but it really does help uh, that the international community does know. So back then in 2009 was probably the, the, the point. When, when Alston's report was published, it was part of a very big uproar um, around the world about the, the ab- absolutely massive killings being undertaken by President Arroyo's administration. And when President Arroyo made a trip to Europe that year, there were two governments who refused to meet her and wouldn't let her really come to their countries. I think it was Denmark and the Netherlands. So that was a big rebuff and and she sort of switched down the dial in terms of the killings and abductions and disappearances that were taking place then. And uh, the next president, it was... Uh, Benigno Aquino III, he really tried to shift out of that mode that she had. Uh, although, you know, political killings continued all through his administration, it was at a much, much lower rate. So people could definitely see a different uh, situation. And then when you come to uh, the one after him, it's Duterte. So the whole thing switched back up. And you know, the international community also reacted to that, but to not to such effect as as it happened with Arroyo, and that was partly because Duterte didn't really travel much, and so there weren't these interfaces where he was confronted in a strong way uh, with uh, disapproval from other governments. He stayed at home. In in his case, the International Criminal Court initiated action. And uh, that's still to unfold, I hope, soon. You know, there's still something to play through in terms of the international community on Duterte. And if it, if that happens, it will also impact on the current president, Marcos Jr. And, you know, it's got to be some kind of uh, combination of international concern being practically applied. There is, you know, limiting loans to the government, limiting trade, you know, preferences, uh, things that register in a material way with the government, especially limiting military cooperation and and aid since the military are carrying out a lot of these killings. So we still have to ask for all that to happen, campaign for that. But clearly, credible uh, reports such as that by Irene Khan or... Uh, Mr. Fry, who uh, spoke in similar terms, I think in December um, last year, you know, these are, these are very important to make it clear to the international community that there's grounds for action. What was the essence of her preliminary report? The uh, findings were, you know, there was the kind words that uh, she was able to visit, that she met all these officials, and that they had in her civil conversations about the situation and then the harder elements uh, with her um, recommendations covering uh, red tagging first of all uh, it's it's the use of you know just media denunciations or other forms of public denunciation of a person as a terrorist or a supporter of terrorists or a communist rebel or something like that which generally leads to harassment, possibly arrest on fake charges, um, and in the worst cases, uh, execution. We call it extrajudicial killing. So red tagging is uh, a practice of the government, 
and um, the government responded by saying that there's no such policy. But of course, she met many people who could show what had happened to them. So um, it's, it's a sad thing that uh, uh, the way initially in the Marcos Junior people have responded to her report was rejection of all the recommendations and um, a form of denial of the reality. So it's still a case of a standoff. So anyway, the red tagging was the first first major recommendation that the president should make an executive order to ban this practice and to punish those officials who indulge in it. So you know, he's let's hope he does it. But uh, so far they're saying there's actually no such policy, so therefore there's no need for that. The next thing that was very powerful was her recommendation that this national task force. Uh, to end local communist armed conflict be abolished. And uh, their response to that was that, uh, no, 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 the NTFLCAC has uh, been the they call it the game changer that's allowed them to crush the uh, armed rebellion in the country. And uh, this is the last moment, you know, the, the worst time to consider stopping it. Again, this is a sort of a craziness uh, since it's, there's no real evidence at all that... Uh, the armed rebellion has uh, diminished in size in the country. Um, there's no end in sight to this armed conflict in the country until there's some kind of political change uh, that addresses the you know, very severe poverty and landlessness and unemployment, which is really a huge, huge uh, sort of uh, wound in the country. Uh, again, I think there's a standoff. Uh, and her other recommendations were more focused on the media, that there should be um, a uh, specific program to enable journalists to do their work. That is, that their employers can't just be shut down or you know, the internet turned off on them or harassed through uh, many you know, legal actions as uh, Maria Racer and the Rappler outlet have or the main TV network being uh, switched off. You know, it's like... They, Duterte's uh, people just cancelled the uh, the license of, uh, so I suppose, the Philippine equivalent to Channel Nine, and so uh, yeah, things like that affecting uh, journalists. And then, of course, there's many journalists being killed. So uh, she she made a number of recommendations in that area. Uh, she she made a pointed uh, remark in her recommendations about the case of Frenchie May Cumpio and uh, called, you know, she'd been in jail for four years without trial on charges that she was um, a terrorist financier or something like that. Actually, she was a 20-year-old journalist with a radio program. Uh, so, again, the, the government people responded by saying that it's all her fault. Uh, Frenchie May's lawyers have delayed the case and kind of utter nonsense. She's, I'd say Miss Khan has done her best to highlight some individual cases as, as well where it's egregious you know, and they, they should be released and nothing's going to happen you know apparently uh, at this point in time from the government. It seems such an indictment of the Philippines that so many human rights officers have come to the country over those years and the sustained abuse of human rights. It is it's a huge indictment and uh, you have to ask seriously, you know, why uh, other governments treat the Philippines like a normal kind of uh, 
player in the international community when when this is actually what's going on in the country. Uh, so it's a willful blindness uh, on the part of you know the Australian government for a start, but especially the United States government and the Japanese government. Canadian government's another one with significant aid programs in the Philippines that they, they just uh, don't want to deal with this because they they see a more important aspect of their relationship with the Philippines is to either in the old days in the Cold War you know to keep communism at bay and now in the post 1990 period it's about keeping China at bay so uh, pretty well the, 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 the truth is governments are prepared to say anything can go in the Philippines pretty well so long as they uh, are part of the Western alliance against China so it's incredibly cynical and uh, it, it really undermines any real credibility in the human rights posturing um, of our government and as I say those other governments what about the other countries in their region in Southeast Asia? How do they feel about the situation in, in the Philippines? Well, you know, the situation in, in all of Southeast Asia, the, the 10 ASEAN countries, you know, is in various ways all, all not so good on the human rights front. But, uh, you know, the rule in, in ASEAN is uh, we don't interfere in each other's internal affairs and therefore they, they all have an interest in not and are picking a fight with another one about their repression because there's some form of repression going on in all of them. But, you know, if you look at the actual data, the Philippines is wildly worse in a whole different level, even from Indonesia, say, which is pretty bad. Malaysia is pretty bad. Myanmar, you know, there's a war going on there, so maybe they're equivalent with the Philippines. Um, but, you know, the Philippines is so bad. In private, you know, when I've done lobbying to the embassies in Canberra, say, of these countries to do with the Human Rights Council, um, privately, you know, they're quite uh, shocked and uh, concerned, want, you know, want to um, know more clearly what's going on in the Philippines. But you know, officially, they're not going to do anything. How would you judge Marcos in his first couple of years? Yes, he's been there um, 19 months now, and uh, I would I would say, you know, the only thing that's changed is the sort of makeup, you know, the uh, the cosmetics uh, on the ground, the NTF LCAC created by uh, Rodrigo's administration got even more budget, you know, under Marcos Jr., and uh, it has just proceeded in its very systematic way in uh, killing people. Uh, having them smeared with the red tagging and uh, another another machinery created in uh, Duterte time is the Anti-Terrorism Council, which is some sort of competitive uh, uh, body with NTF-LCAC, but it, its role is to uh, seems to be to denounce people as terrorists, then freeze their assets, have them arrested without charge, things like that. And that's also having a, a big impact. So I would say... The cosmetics might be different. The, the tone of voice, especially from the president, is very different. But the reality on the ground is pretty savage. So it's a continuum, I think, rather than a change that, that we have to sort of face up to. Are the new US bases operating? 
Not yet, but they're you know they're in construction. So once you make a, a, a decision like that to create four more bases, uh, you you need to you know build the wharves or build the warehouses or build the bunkers that are required for the uh, naval facility or the air facility. So that's what's happening now. You know, it can be a sort of um, calm, it looks calm, you know, what they made an announcement and nothing apparently is happening, but it's really a time bomb. You know, as, as things get developed and then forces are deployed, then uh, you get the temperature rising between China and uh, the Philippines, particularly the US forces in the Philippines, uh, because... Two, I think two of these four bases are really oriented towards Taiwan and one of them is really not that far away at all, you know, like 150 or 200 kilometres or something like that. So the, these are these are sort of really increasing the tension in the region. And uh, again, Australia is 100% supportive of this and uh, it's really like um, playing with uh, a sort of Russian roulette, I think. So uh, Filipino people, especially close to those bases, are quite agitated about what's happening. And uh, so there's a sort of a, you know, a polarisation of sorts happening in the social level in the Philippines about this. Uh, and even in the upper circles, and even in the Marcos family, you can hear that, say, the president's sister, who's quite a powerful figure, is very uh, much tut-tutting or, you know, saying it's not a great idea to have all of this tension build up um, and that uh, relations with China should be more relaxed and um, other, others, of course, are doing doing the opposite. So uh, I, it's hard to predict where that'll go, Jan, but at, at this stage you have to be realistic and say the, the, the tension is just going to increase and the danger of war and the Philippines being a battlefield in a bigger war is uh, is quite real. And finally, Peter, the Australian contribution to that situation. Well, the, in particular, um, in last year, the Defence Minister, the Foreign Minister and the Prime Minister all visited the Philippines, met with uh, President Marcos Jr. And uh, Prime Minister Albanese signed a strategic partnership agreement uh, with the Philippines uh, with Marcos Jr. So uh, that was a sort of upgrading of the relationship between our two governments. Uh, and in particular, it was about military cooperation. In that agreement, of course, uh, our Prime Minister didn't use the words human rights once. So that's really disappointing and uh, stupid, I would say. So uh, the upshot <clears throat> is that uh, the Defence Minister will meet the uh, Philippine Defence Secretary annually instead of every two years and that an Australian frigate or warship, surface ship, will patrol in the South China Sea with whatever is called the Philippine Navy to push back against the Chinese you know, Coast Guard or the Chinese militia fishing boats or the Chinese Navy. So uh, I think um, you know the Australian military is much much more now I think you could consider in the firing line or put itself in harm's way as part of this stepping up of the relationship between between the, between the two governments and that of course is is within the framework of our alliance with the US. Thanks once again Peter. Okay good to talk about it all Jan thank you. Bye-bye. I've been speaking with human rights activist Peter Murphy from Sydney. Are you a 3CR subscriber? 
We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse, dynamic and radical radio station. Nominations are due by Wednesday the 14th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact the 3CR station manager on 03 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. No more whispering in our arms Gonna rise up to break these chains And stop these killing Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday at the State Library. Isja Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Journalists sacked, school teachers threatened, medical practitioners warned and others in society stepping back in fear of persecution. This is what Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees labels the toxic effect of censorship in Gaza. Stuart, this censorship is not confined to Australia. How widespread do you believe it is? Oh, I think it's as widespread as the domination of the Israeli narrative since 1948. That's so widespread. In other words... Versions of history are conveyed in stories, and until you know, relatively recently, the story about Israel-Palestine has come from one source only, namely the story about Israel being the high achiever and the victim, and the people of Palestine being of little consequence. And now we're seeing all that in the attempt to obliterate a whole people in Gaza. So, yeah, the, the censorship of trying to express an alternative view to that narrative is unfortunately still strong in spite of the end of time slaughter that is going on in front of our very eyes. Do you have any knowledge of how the story is being told in maybe Arab countries and countries of the South? I think... Um, the um, the developed world is it's ref- uh, the countries of the south would be reflected in the case made by South Africa before the International Court of Justice. In other words, they they are quite familiar with the um, cruelty towards Palestinians. 
they would be familiar too, I think, with Nelson Mandela's famous saying that um, South Africa will not be free until Palestinians are also free. Um, As to the Arab world, I'm not so certain what their media lets them know. I suspect if they tune into Al Jazeera, they will have a very comprehensive picture. When it comes to Israel, I think they're not allowed to know anything very much except allegedly the the triumph of, um, uh, of the Israeli army. Just focus for a few moments on the ABC here in Australia. Criticism from both the right and those who support Palestine. What's your assessment? Well, I think that for some reason or other, they've had decades of being frightened of the of, of giving space and oxygen to the Palestinian point of view. I mean, it's a bit like subscribing an article to the um, to the Sydney Morning Herald, and they'll only consider it if it's immediately matched with the Israeli point of view. So, I think there there's genuine fear in the in the halls and corridors of the ABC that if they were to publish something slightly critical of Israel's slaughter of people, they would be facing a torrent of abuse from the Zionist lobby. So they're inhibited by that fear. And according to people like John Lyons and others, that often results in self-censorship. The journalists don't uh, write spontaneously or courageously or fearfully. Instead, they they say, well, they better cause least amount of trouble. And causing least amount of trouble means abiding by what that is, Zionist lobby wants. And it's been shown that that Zionist lobby is active with the ABC. Well, yeah, I mean, the, as far as I can make out, this a group of, I, I assume mostly men, not entirely, a group arrogantly calling themselves lawyers for Israel, clearly got to the centres of power in the ABC to object to uh, the young journalist um, uh, Latouf's sharing by, uh, on social media the notion that starvation is being used as a weapon of war by, the, by Israel. I mean, that, that sounds to me like a pretty unexceptional statement but she lost her job as a result. And, and, the, and these brave, invisible men, the lawyers for Israel, would no doubt be satisfied with their victory. Oh, they're a bunch of invisible bullies, basically, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to put up with it, or we, used to, or we should expose who and what they are. Well, as John Lyons says, it's obvious, but what can they do about it? What can the journalists do? Well, this, I think you can be, uh, you have to be courageous. I mean, if, this, if, if we're hedging our bets all the time, if we're putting our finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing, it means we don't stand for anything. I mean, there's a real danger of that. I mean, it's part of the populist, Trumpist movement to say that there's no such thing as the truth. Anybody who tries to explain truthfully what's happening gets um, dismissed as, um, as a purveyor of fake news. You have to stand up and be brave. <laughs> it's a bit like 
thing I mentioned in an earlier article when we were talking about cowardice and courage in public life, that Julius Caesar said that, um, you know, cowardly people who they die many times in their lives because basically they don't stand for anything very much or nothing consistently. Whereas people with courage only die once, is what he said. And of course, this is not confined to the media. What's happening in the medical field that you know of? Sure, no, that's a good question, John. Look, the fact that the regulatory body for, for doctors is making inquiries into doctors, some of whom have been in uh, Gaza, who've made, who've recorded their observations about the inhumanities, the bestialities that they've witnessed being carried out by the Israeli army. And so there, being, there are inquiries about their posts and about their conduct. Even one of them is about a, a, a trainee doctor who lost in, from Gaza, who lost five members of his family and who clearly uh, regretted, complained and publicized that. I mean, what in heaven's name is, is wrong with that? In fact, he, had, he really he has a medical professional responsibility to publish it. But the, the regulatory body, probably as intimidated as the ABC, are conducting in, an inquiry into what he's supposed to have done. And now we're having an inquiry into at least one school teacher. Well, yeah, look, the, there's a self-appointed Zionist. Uh, well, she's a Zionist who's a self-appointed uh, hunter of anybody who's anti-Semitic. She's a, work, she's a prominent young woman, works for um, Sky News. So she reveals that this principal of a, a New South Wales high school has been videoed um, in her making plans for movements to support the people of Palestine. And then Sky News very excitedly says they've got, a, they've got this explosive video. They love that, that sort of war-like language. And I think the Department of Education then is obliged to, quote, cancel the school principal, unquote. On the contrary, we should all... Every school principal, every student, every teacher should be expressing outrage at what is going on in Gaza. If we don't, we're merely condoning this end-of-time humanity that we're having to watch. We've also got a teacher under threat here in Melbourne, but also under threat are the students who rally for Palestine. Yeah, look, I mean... It, I mean, I know in America you can be fired, dismissed from campus for using words like apartheid and genocide. It really shouldn't happen here. I mean, the, the University of Melbourne has already shown how cowardly they are by adopting the IHRI definition of anti-Semitism. The universities should be the bastions of social justice, the bastions of human rights. They should be encouraging the courage of staff and students to irrespective of criticism, to identify what is going on, what is, what is so obviously inhuman. I mean, it brings me back to the statement made by a wonderful social scientist in the run-up to the Second World War. He said if, the people, if they didn't protest, if people were just keeping their heads down in universities, concentrating on their own private interests, they were, quote, lecturing on navigation 
while the ship is going down, unquote. The irony of that is that he was criticizing people's indifference to what was happening in terms of the discrimination of Jewish people in in Europe. Well, where does this censorship leave our so-called democratic society? Well, it, first of all, it's it's a sad it's a sad indictment, and we have to struggle on, in every way possible to say there has to be freedom of speech. We cannot be dominated by this one-sided narrative aided and abetted by the American arms industry, but aided and abetted, Jan, by the notion that violence is the way to solve problems, that the person, that the, the country, the organization with the biggest reserves of violence decides what is correct and moral. So the fact that we that the media gives oxygen to the wretched Netanyahu night after night when he should be be arraigned before uh, the, he should be taken to the Hague on charges of human rights abuses, on charges of crimes against humanity. Instead of that, we get we we fed this guy who's been doing this for decades, telling us that he wants complete victory of, in exterminating a whole people. And, and let's be clear, they're not making any distinction between the citizens of Gaza, the, the children, the premature babies, and Hamas. According to the Israeli leaders, these people are all the same. Well, where does that leave you and I when we discuss this regularly? I'm not sure. I mean, I mean I've just written a long poem called It's About Despair and Dismay. I mean, lots of people are saying, what do we do with our despair? How do we overcome this? I mean, writing another article is, doesn't, doesn't lower my blood pressure, doesn't relieve my despair. I mean, I, I think we should... Well, for a start, for example, I mean, two things we could do. One is to argue for a peace force to occupy parts of Israel. That idea should be put forward. And the second thing is that with regard to cutting off funds for UNRWA, the humanitarian aid for Palestine... We should, across Australia, we should, have, we should have an international UNRWA fund in which private citizens contribute to make up for what the cowardly Australian government has refused to supply. So there's a couple of initiatives. OK, well, I'm sure that we will continue to talk about this issue, Stuart. I'm sure we will, Jane, and I look forward to seeing you soon. OK, bye-bye. And I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees in Sydney. Dresia needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
Celebrate all that unites us and host a Feast for Freedom this year. Cook delicious global recipes gifted by refugees and come together with your friends, family and community while raising vital funds for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Register now at feastforfreedom.org.au. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a 3CR supporter. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. CR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. China, China, China. Our government and others appear to be obsessed with China moving further into the Pacific. So today, Nick McClellan, correspondent with Ireland's Business Magazine and other regional media, will focus on this area. But first, Nick, two issues both relating to the Pacific. Number one, what you've headlined in an article for Inside Story, The Feckless Four. And the second issue, the support for Palestinian rights amongst Pacific Islanders. But first, The Feckless Four. Who are they and why? There's a really interesting times where there's a lot of talk about the rules-based order respect for human rights, respect for international law, and so on. And that's been highlighted particularly because of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, because of Israel's massacre against the Palestinians, and beyond. The Feckless Four are four countries, indeed the only four countries in the world, who voted on a United Nations General Assembly resolution uh, three days before Christmas, 22nd of December. And the resolution had been put forward by Kiribati and Kazakhstan. Um, You might think they're two quite distinct separate countries, and they are, but both of them suffered from Cold War nuclear testing. Kiribati was uh, uh, the site of Britain's hydrogen bomb testing program. They tested on Christmas in Malden Island. Kazakhstan, the Russians, uh, as it was the USSR, did um, 426 nuclear tests in Kazakhstan. So the health and environmental legacies of the Cold War nuclear programs have brought together Kiribati and Kazakhstan. They put forward a resolution to the UN calling for assistance to nuclear survivors, calling for compensation schemes and environmental cleanup and remediation. So the feckless four are the four countries in the world that voted against that resolution. There were six people who abstained on the vote and five of those were nuclear weapon states. United States, China, Israel, Pakistan, India, all stood aside. They wouldn't go either way. But the feckless four, as I've called them, France and the United Kingdom, joined Russia and North Korea 
to vote against this resolution, to say that they didn't want to support a UN resolution about support for nuclear survivors, for people that they'd nuked during the 20th century Cold War development of nuclear arsenals. You know, so when you hear countries like France and Britain and the United States and others talk about the rules-based order, that only goes so far. They don't want the rules to apply to them. And this is a non-binding resolution. It's not, you know, as if it's anything that they had to actually do things legally. But morally, 171 countries of the world said, yeah, we should look after the people whose land and waters were irradiated, whose health was damaged during the 50 years of nuclear testing from the Second World War to the end of the 20th century. And of course, in Australia, that's a huge issue because before they went and nuked Kiribati, Britain conducted 12 atomic tests at Montebello, at Maralinga, Emu Field, the latter two test sites on the land of the Anungu people of South Australia. So the hypocrisy of these great states where Emmanuel Macron and Rishi Sunak line up with Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un to say we don't support assistance to nuclear survivors. You know, the hypocrisy of this is stunning. Well, Nick, where does this leave the survivors? Well, they're continuing to organise. And one of the features of this is it's based on the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This was a, a new humanitarian disaster treaty that was entered into force in January 2021. Uh, people will know ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which was founded in Melbourne, has really driven the the development and adoption of this. So Kiribati and Kazakhstan, you know, putting up this motion to the UN is part of a longer process to implement the provisions of this really unique disarmament treaty because it, it includes provisions saying that state parties to the TPNW, as it's known, have to assist nuclear survivors, have to have an obligation to uh, work towards environmental remediation of nuclear use, nuclear testing, and so on. Those sort of focuses have been driven by Indigenous peoples, particularly from the Pacific. Aboriginal, Maui, Ikitabas uh, and others were very involved in negotiating this treaty. Um, there's pressure on the Albanese government to sign it. You know, 91 countries have signed the treaty. Uh, I think nearly 70 have, um, have uh, actually ratified the treaty already. Well, that's a significant part of the UN General Assembly membership. Um, there's a lot more to come and certainly the nuclear weapon states don't like it. Indeed, first they just laughed at the idea that there could be such a treaty. Now that it exists, they're actually actively opposing it. And, and the fact that, you know, the US and Pakistan and others would, would abstain on this resolution is hardly a surprise. But for France and Britain to actually vote against it, given that France conducted 193 nuclear tests at Mororoa and Fungotofa, Britain conducted 12 tests in Australia, another nine in Kiribati in the South Pacific, the double standards, the hypocrisy of this is in fact what's driving a lot of shifts in public opinion. And you can see that very clearly around the current conflict in Gaza and the West Bank. Just before we go to that, Nick, we're well aware of the impacts of the French, British and US tests. What do you know about the impact on the people in Kazakhstan? There's a wonderful book written by a, a woman named Tongzan Kazanova. It's called Atomic Step. It's a brilliant book from a few years ago. Um, you can download it and, 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 and get a copy. And she talks about the effects on uh, the, uh, the Kazakh people. The tests were in a region known as Semipalatinsk, you know, an area of quite vast spaces.
space. You know, some 18,000 square kilometers of, of Kazakhstan were affected by the fallout and the multiple nuclear tests and experiments that were conducted during the Cold War, when, of course, Kazakhstan was part of the USSR in those days. But the, the Russians looked at Kazakhstan as this vast empty space, just as the British looked at the uh, islands of the, the Monte Bellows, the deserts of South Australia, as if they were empty spaces where they conduct their nuclear testing. Well, of course, they weren't empty. There were people there. And in Kazakhstan, the Kazakhs organized very strongly during the period to uh, try and address this. But since the uh, implosion of the, the Soviet Union in the, the 1990s and Kazakhstan's independence, they've been at the forefront internationally of saying, we don't want anything to do with nuclear weapons. So Kazakhstan and Kiribati, two pretty unlikely partners, have been working together very closely within the United Nations system to advance this agenda. And um, anyone interested in the terrible devastation caused by literally hundreds of nuclear tests in Kazakhstan should read um, Kazanova's book. It's a great read. The support for Palestinian rights in the Pacific. It's shifting, and it's really interesting. You know, historically, Pacific Island countries, uh, Pacific Island governments particularly, have been very strong supporters of Israel. And that comes from a mixture of, uh, of reasons. Some Pacific governments, like uh, the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia, are aligned with the United States through um, what they call the Compact of Free Association. These are agreements that give the United States certain rights over defence and foreign policy issues for these countries, even though they're independent with their own prime ministers, presidents uh, uh, and parliaments. And so you often see UN resolutions about Palestine where it might be, you know, 170 to 6. And the 6 is usually uh, the United States, Israel, and two or three small Caribbean and Pacific countries, uh, Dominica, Nauru, Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, are regular countries voting this way. And so you saw um, after the, uh, the events, the brutal attacks of uh, the 7th of October, and Israeli government launching attacks on Palestinian civilians and non-combatants in Gaza, the first resolution that came up in October 2023 from Jordan and other countries calling for a ceasefire and calling for a um, humanitarian support for the people of Gaza, there were 14 countries that voted against that um, alongside the United States and uh, Israel Six of the 12 remaining countries who voted no on that first resolution in October came from the Pacific Islands. And some of that's drawn from, you know, conservative politics about the Middle East. Some of it's the result of uh, strong Israeli diplomacy and, uh, and, and negotiations in the Pacific over the last 20 years. Some of it's really drawn on cultural matters related to the strong strands of Christianity in the Pacific, the vision of uh, Israel as the Holy Land, and historic connections with uh, Christian Zionism as a strong movement across the Pacific. What's really changing at the moment, and this is happening all over the world, is that there is small but significant support for the Palestinians growing in Pacific Island countries and territories right across the region. And um, I wrote an article which was published in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, highlighting the, the really unprecedented nature of this shift in 
the smallest countries in the world, in the Pacific, towards support for Palestine simply because of Israeli policy under the Netanyahu government and indeed going back for decades um, under successive governments. And what's been the reaction to that, Nick? It was really interesting that Haaretz were very eager to, to do this because the Israeli government constantly touts the fact that Pacific Island governments have been very supportive of Israel's uh, policy over many years. Indeed, recently, uh, last September, Papua New Guinea announced that it would shift its embassy from uh, uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Occupied Jerusalem is uh, is seen as, a, particularly East Jerusalem, is seen as a place for uh, a future Palestinian state as part of a Palestinian state. So there's enormous resistance to this idea that Donald Trump was, you know, eagerly pushing when he was president to relocate embassies to Jerusalem. The Israeli government has agreed to bankroll for the first few years the costs of Papua New Guinea maintaining an embassy in Jerusalem rather than Tel Aviv. So there's a bit of money on the table to make that happen. You know, Israel is very proudly saying, look, these countries, you know, these moral Christian countries really support what we're doing. And what we've seen is public pressure begin to shift that. I don't want to exaggerate this too far. There's still very strong support for Israel amongst ordinary people and certainly amongst some governments in the Pacific. But we've seen in every country and territory protests in support of Palestine, petitions, vigils, protest rallies, uh, lobbying and so on. And it's having some effect. For example, Fiji, uh, under Prime Minister Sidibini Rambuka, came out and criticised Hamas after 7th of October very strongly. And Fiji voted no to the first resolution in October 2023 in support of a ceasefire. However, there have been massive protests in PNG. Uh, every week, women's groups and uh, um, non-government human rights groups and others gather for protests. Uh, they're small but significant, rallying support for Palestine. When the South Africans launched their case before the ICJ, community groups in Fiji hired a hall and live-streamed the South African presentation, which was the call to the International Court of Justice to acknowledge uh, uh, that Israel is committing genocide in the uh, occupied territories and in Gaza. And so you see that shift. So when a second vote came up in December, a second resolution that went to the UN about uh, a, an immediate ceasefire, about humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians, Fiji switched its vote and voted yes instead of no. Uh, Samoa didn't vote in the first vote in uh, October 2023, but there was a big petition campaign in Samoa. There were rallies outside the government office, and Samoa voted yes in support of a ceasefire in December. That's not the case for every Pacific country. There's certainly a diversity, but um, in the article that I published in Haaretz, I listed protests uh, not just in independent countries, but in the US and French colonies in the Pacific. There have been protests in Guam, in the Northern Marianas, in New Caledonia, in solidarity with the Palestinian people and calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the conflict. Those are part of a global trend, and I think Haaretz was eager to publish it simply because it made the point that this is an epochal change in Israel's relationship with other countries in the Middle East and Israel's long-term occupation of the Palestinian people that Israeli Hasbara, as it's called, Israeli propaganda, isn't working. And it's not working in the smallest countries in the world. I was at the Cook Islands in November last year for the annual leaders meeting 
the Pacific Islands Forum, and a small rally was held by women, Cook Islands women, outside the the venue um, with a banner saying, Pacific leaders, call for a ceasefire, stop the massacre of God's children. That sort of, (laughs) as I say, it was a small protest, but I think people in in Haaretz were interested that in a country like the Cook Islands, which is 18,000 kilometres away from Gaza, it's about as far as you can go around the world, a tiny country of 17,000 people, there was a demonstration calling for the end of the Gaza massacre. And that's a significant shift. Long-term politics doesn't mean that everyone supports Palestine in the Pacific. That's certainly not the case. But it just does reflect that there's a global trend for people realising that the long-term occupation of Palestinian land is leading to this disaster. It's a great pity, isn't it, Nick, that this hasn't rubbed off on the Australian government? Well, we have unprecedented protests in Australia. You know, I think the the failure of the Australian government is is shown by the suspension of funding to UNRWA immediately after the International Court of Justice has issued provisional measures calling, as they judge the long-term case, so that it'll take some years as to whether Israel is committing genocide, in the interim, they've called explicitly for countries, state parties to the ICJ, including Australia, state parties to the Genocide Convention, including Australia, to do all they can to abide by the provisional measures. And part of that is providing humanitarian support. There's a clear call. Well, they haven't determined. They've said there's a plausible case that genocide is being committed and that will ultimately be judged over some time. But in the interim, they've said you have to provide humanitarian support to the women, to the children, to the men, to the non-combatants, to the civilians who are being devastated by hunger, by cold, by illness, as well as by bombardment. That's a, a signal failure that Australia has been willing to go along with suspending aid, even though there's a lot of evidence now coming through the media that um, the question about the role of UNRWA in October the 7th is not as strong as has been suggested. Also, there's a lot of questions about what really happened on the 7th of October. Reading the Israeli press, you get a much different spectrum of debate than you sometimes see in the Australian media or the US media and so on. Um, You know, there are very courageous journalists like Gideon Levy, who once again is very much in the minority of public opinion, but who continue to speak out about what a disaster this is in the long term for security in Israel and security for Israelis of Arab, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Caucasian heritage. It's a terrible crisis at the moment. And as the immediate horror ends with the death of civilians, with the attacks on people in the West Bank and so on, with the release of the hostages, you'll then face a political crisis about what comes next. And I think that there's a growing awareness in Israel that the Netanyahu government has led them to the abyss in terms of political futures around security. And this is a reflection of debates that are going on around the world at the moment as people question this notion of what sort of security are we talking about? You know, the four countries, Russia, North Korea, France and Britain, who joined together at the UN to protect their nuclear arsenals, what security is that creating in the world for people in Ukraine who are under Russian bombardment, for people in Gaza who are under Israeli bombardment, for Rohingya in in, uh, Myanmar and other places? There's a global debate about the role of international law and security, and often governments are on the wrong side of that debate. 
whereas citizens' movements are growing around the world saying this has to be changed. You're listening to an extended interview with Nick McClellan, who's the correspondent for Ireland's Business Magazine and other regional media in the Pacific. Well, let's move on to concerns about security in the Pacific. And, of course, that means China, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't mean China because (laughs) that's the framing that the Australian media gives, that China is the biggest threat to security in the region. And Pacific governments, dare I say, including Australia, don't agree. In 2018, at the Pacific Islands Forum hosted in Nauru, the forum leaders adopted what was called the Boy Declaration. Boy is a suburb in, in the capital Yaren of Nauru. And so the Boy Declaration is um, a statement about regional security. And it's a significant shift because it, it attempts to broaden the discussion about security. What are the greatest threats to Pacific Island countries? So it includes references to you know big state-to-state security issues like nuclear proliferation. It talks about regional transnational threats like people smuggling or drugs or other criminal activity across the region, transnational criminal activity. But the main push from the island countries was to broaden the discussion to what they call human security, which is issues of poverty, of development, of ending the plague of violence against women in the home, workplace community. And it's about environmental security. And obviously the biggest existential threat to the security of most people is climate change. And the Boy Declaration famously says that. It says in you know, direct quote, the greatest single threat to the livelihoods, well-being and security of Pacific peoples is climate change. That's a challenge to countries like Australia, which is the biggest aid, trade, military power in the region, give a lot of lot of aid to the Pacific. But Pacific governments are saying, we want you to shift some of the resources that you put into the traditional state-centred security issues towards human and environmental security. That challenge is very starkly posed with the Auckland submarines. You know, the projections are that we'll spend up to $368 billion in coming decades on the submarines. It's probably going to cost a lot more if they ever get built, which I don't think they will, but that's another story. $368 billion. What is Australia putting into climate finance to address the greatest single security threat? And this tension is playing out because in 2017, Australia adopted, under the coalition government, a foreign affairs white paper that said we want to integrate Pacific Island countries into Australia's security and economic institutions. It says explicitly that a goal of Australian foreign policy is to integrate Pacific Island countries into Australia's economic and security institutions. Okay, sure, there's possibly some real synergies. We're a close neighbour to the Pacific. There are things we could do together. But whose definition of security is playing out? Our definition of security, which is that China's the greatest threat and we need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on nuclear submarines? Or the Pacific's definition of security, which is much broader and includes environmental security, human security, as well as concerns about global aggression and nuclear proliferation. But that pressure on those countries in the Pacific, and you can just talk about a couple of them, PNG, the Prime Minister, was here just recently, pressure to keep China out. Solomon Islands, keep China out. And that goes through the Pacific. We must keep China out. 
absolutely. Australia, going back since 1788, Australia's had a, a policy, well, certainly since Federation, um, Australia's had a policy of strategic denial in the Pacific. The notion that the small island states, and not so small like um, the island of New Guinea, islands to the north and to the east of Australia provide a buffer zone, basically a security buffer zone that keeps people away from Australia. It's much more nuanced and complex from that, but you get the idea. And obviously, you know, it's been Australian policy going back decades and decades and decades to keep out official enemies from having political, economic, and certainly military influence in that buffer zone. And that's one of the big shifts we've seen in recent years because the United States is particularly concerned that they feel Australia and New Zealand has dropped the ball over the last 20, 25 years in the Pacific and not dealt with, as the largest player in the Pacific Islands Forum, not dealt with the growing concerns of Pacific Island countries and around climate particularly. And you, we don't have to talk again and again and again about Australia's track record on climate policy where we've been a disaster for Pacific Island countries. And so you see that shift at the moment where the Americans, through a whole range of institutions, what Joe Biden's national security strategy from 2022 called a lattice work of institutions, and that's things like AUKUS, it's things like the Quad, which unites India, Japan, Australia, United States, you know, other things on technology and cyber and uh, infrastructure standards. The Americans, Australians and Japanese uh, and others have built up what they call the Blue Dot Network. And that's trying to set standards for infrastructure. And obviously, you know, the subtext of that is we want Pacific Island countries and countries in Southeast Asia and beyond to use our infrastructure standards rather than Chinese infrastructure standards. That's unstated, but that's the driver. And, you know, a lot of what's happening in AUKUS is not about the submarines. It's actually about the Pillar 2, as they're called, issues like technology, cyber, telecommunications, infrastructure, ports, harbours and so on. And so you see that battle being played out as Australia and the United States try and get Papua New Guinea, Tuvalu, Vanuatu and others to sign on to security agreements that constrain the influence, not just of the Chinese, but of other players. Um, even like the European Union, where there's competition between the Americans and the Europeans on certain things. The small island of Tuvalu, that made news like last year too, didn't it? Well, that's a really good example. At the Pacific Islands Forum in Rarotonga last November, Prime Minister Albanese and the then Prime Minister of uh, Tuvalu, Kausea Natano, announced what they called the Falapili Union. It's a Tuvaluan term and it means sort of coming together a really interesting political treaty, security treaty, where Australia commits to supporting Tuvalu in very practical ways, particularly around granting migration rights to um, allow some 280 visas a year for Tuvaluans to come and live, study, work in Australia and uh, access Australian health, education, um, support and so on. It's a significant pathway for a country like Tuvalu small nation of about 11,000 people that's really threatened by the adverse effects of climate change. But the sting in the tail in this uh, Falapili Union is the quid pro quo. Australia didn't do this out of the goodness of its heart. It requires Tuvalu 
to uh, give up some sovereignty, essentially, to allow Australia to have uh, some oversight of defence and security policy. Treaty creates obligations on Tuvalu to, and I quote, mutually agree with Australia on any partnership, arrangement or engagement with any other state or entity on security and defence related matters. So it's written into the treaty that Australia and Tuvalu have to agree if Tuvalu wants any partnership, arrangement or engagement with any other state or entity. And when we're talking about security and defence related matters, that's pretty broad. In the, and once again, it's written in the treaty. Such matters include, but are not limited to, defence, policing, border protection, cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, including ports, telecommunications and energy infrastructure. So according to the written text of this, Tuvalu has to mutually agree with Australia if it wants to engage with any other state to talk about infrastructure like ports, telephones and energy. That's what it says in black and white. Now, Australia's saying, oh, no, no, we didn't mean we want to dominate them on those issues. But that's caused a huge debate in Tuvalu when people actually found out about this because there was very little transparency about this. There was no cabinet debate or parliamentary debate in Tuvalu, let alone Australia, about this treaty. I'll give you an anecdote. I, as a journalist working for Pacific Islands magazine, wasn't invited to the press conference where this was announced because the Australian press pack, who were following Albanese, saw that this was a climate treaty to benefit Tuvaluans to come to Australia because of climate change. And it was sold that way. But when you get down to Article 4, which talks about uh, these cooperation for security and stability, it's a sting in the tail. Now, there was an enormous backlash in Tuvalu. One of the early prime ministers, Anneli Sopwanga, who uh, was replaced by Natano, Sopwanga came out very strongly against this, saying this was a real breach of sovereignty. And the punchline was that this treaty was pushed through just two months before Tuvalu's elections. The people of Tuvalu went to vote on the 26th of January in their national elections. Guess what? Prime Minister Kasaita Natano lost his seat in the parliament, not just lost the prime ministership, lost his seat. All voters vote for hip pocket issues, uh, issues of health and education and so on. This wasn't the only issue that saw the, his, his parliamentary defeat, but it was certainly a big issue. And we're going to see really interesting debates when a new government is formed. There are six members, of the, 16 members of the parliament. Some of them are actually stuck out on the outer islands where they went to, to campaign for voting over Christmas New Year, they can't get to the main island to, to hold parliament because of bad weather. <laughs> How's that for climate change as an issue? Sounds to me like democracy and independence going out the back door. This is the challenge, and countries like Papua New Guinea, like Vanuatu, like Tuvalu and others are trying to manoeuvre between the elephants. You have the United States and China both actively engaged in regional diplomacy, and it's working for Chinese. Um, you know, Nauru, as people will know, the day after the elections in Taiwan, Nauru switched its diplomatic relationship from Taipei to Beijing. Um, and that's a really significant change because the previous Nauruan governments under Baron Wonger and David Adiang have been uh, firmly partisan supporters of Taiwan. So there's some major shifts going on. And one of the reasons is countries in the Pacific that have promoted policies of friends to all enemies to none are pretty pragmatic. 
they're willing to work with a whole range of countries, regardless of their political structure or their authoritarian nature or whatever, if it will benefit the people on the ground, or if sometimes it will maintain them in political power. Awareness amongst Pacific Island countries that they hear a lot of promises and pledges but they want to see action on the ground. They want concrete results that can benefit the human security and environmental security of citizens. And they watch, for example, what's happening in the United States at the moment, where the US Congress is completely dysfunctional. The Republicans hold the majority in the House of Representatives, but a very narrow majority. And there's a so-called Freedom Caucus full of right-wing nutjobs in the US Congress who are blocking a whole range of Biden administration initiatives that are designed to try and maintain US primacy on the international stage. There's been debates about money for Ukraine, money for Gaza. Can the Biden administration get stuff through? And they failed signally because the Republicans are in total chaos. Um, But one of the problems is that the Biden administration has a whole series of funding pledges that they've made to Pacific Island countries that are completely not part of the debate at the moment, uh, which is focused on the big picture like Ukraine and and the Middle East. The Biden administration pledged $7.1 billion over 20 years to the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau, which are the three so-called compact states. These are three countries in the Micronesian Islands, just north of the equator, that have a compact of free association with the U.S., that gives them migration rights, um, funding support for you know everything from the postal service to other things from the U.S., but it also gives U.S. control over defence and foreign policy in many areas. You'd think seven billion dollars over 20 years—that's money down the back of the couch, looking at the size of the American budget. But twice in the last two months, U.S. House of Reps and Senate hasn't put the the COFA money, the Compact of Free Association money, in the budget. In December, they passed the National Defence Authorisation Act, which is the annual defence budget for fiscal year 2024. No money for the pacts with the Micronesian states. They just put forward a supplemental bill, hasn't even got through Congress because of the chaos. No money for the COFA. The Micronesian presidents have just written to Biden saying, hey, what are you doing? You're worried about China and yet you refuse to give us the money. And this is a serious problem because... The financial year for the U.S. starts on the 1st of October. The money for the Marshall Islands and Federated States of Micronesia was supposed to start flowing on the 1st of October last year. And months later, Congress still hasn't even put it into a bill, let alone signed the check. People look at the U.S. going into presidential election year, where Trump and Biden will be at war, and think, What use are Joe Biden's pledges that they'll give climate finance to the Green Climate Fund, for example? There's no way in an election year the Republican Congress is going to do anything around climate finance for the Pacific. Um, So you're going to see a real disjuncture between what's pledged and what hits the ground. That's true for Australia as well. You're talking about the Marshall Islands. That's the next visit for you? Yeah, the 1st of March is the 70th anniversary of the Bravo nuclear test. 1st of March, 1954, the United States conducted its largest ever nuclear test. Bravo test on Bikini Atoll was 15 megatons. Megaton is about a million tons equivalent of 
TNT explosive, just to give you a comparison. It's a big bomb. The bomb dropped on Hiroshima was 15,000 kilotons. 15 kilotons, so 15,000 tons equivalent of explosive. There's 15 million tons. It's a big bomb. And it spread radiation over 20 out of 22 atolls across the Marshall Islands, particularly the four northern atolls, uh, Rongelap, Utrik, Alinglai, and others, Eniwitok. There were 269 Marshall Islanders and some U.S. military forces living on those islands, some U.S. military weathermen on one of the islands. The Americans evacuated the military personnel and then came back a couple of days later to pick up the islanders, who by then had been um, covered with radioactive fallout. There was a number of Japanese fishing boats in the danger zone, and as the winds changed and blew across, famously or infamously, there was a Japanese fishing boat called the, the Lucky Dragon, number five. The Lucky Dragon got back to port with its crew irradiated. It fished that they'd caught all toxic from radioactive fallout. One of the, the crew died pretty soon after, and the others have been sick for many years. Uh, gradually, that was a long time ago. Most of the crew have now passed away. But going back to Japan, a country that had already had nuclear weapons dropped on it by the United States uh, just years before, caused an international scandal. Bravo test really changed international opinion. You know, 1954, Within a year or so, Japan's peace movement against Huikyo, the Japanese Council against A&H bombs, was created. 1958, as Britain moved to test its nuclear weapons, uh, CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, was there. Uh, there's a Maori poet, uh, Honey, who wrote um, a, a poem called No Ordinary Sun about the bombs. Neville Shute wrote a famous book called On the Beach, which set Melbourne as the last place on Earth um, as the Northern Hemisphere was devastated by nuclear war. The Japanese made, started making Godzilla movies, which was about a monster from the ocean. There was a huge cultural, social, political awakening in the aftermath of the Bravo test. And Marshall Islanders in 1954, in April that year, took a petition to the UN Trusteeship Council because they were under the administration of the United States at that time, not an independent country. And yet they petitioned the UN calling for an end to nuclear testing. So, you know, the protests against nuclear weapons in the Pacific Islands began in the 50s, um, not later in the 70s against French testing. And so, bravo, the 70th anniversary, it's a really important anniversary for the Marshall Islands, simply because the people who were directly affected, the people who lived on the island are, are aging, most have passed away um, over the decades, and a younger generation of Marshall Islanders are living with the radioactive legacies, the health issues, the environmental damage, the waste, tons and tons and tons of nuclear materials, contaminated nuclear materials, buried underneath a concrete dome on Runet Island, and we took that uh, leaching radioactive isotopes into the marine environment. The younger generation are commemorating the events of the 1st of March 1954, 70 years later, because they're still living with the radioactive legacies. And that's why people who go to the United Nations saying that the nuclear powers have a responsibility to assist nuclear survivors for environmental remediation and to abolish nuclear weapons. And I'm sure we all concur with that sentiment from Nick McClellan, correspondent for Ireland's Business Magazine. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.